Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for episode 13 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the Wither Whiteness episode. I'm Baratunde Thurston here in Panoply's New York studios with my regular co-discussant Tanner Colby. And due to a scheduling conflict, the lovely Raquel Cepeda can't be with us this morning, so we're joined by our very special and first recurring guest, Anand Girdadas, author of The True American Murder and Mercy in Texas. On our last episode, we discussed white nationalism and its embrace of the Donald Trump campaign and the strange story of a white poet, Michael Derrick Hudson, who used an Asian pen name to get published in the annual Best American Poetry Anthology. And now with some of what you had to say, producer A.C. Valdez. Hey, Baratunde, how you doing? Doing well. Good to be back. Welcome back, man. Thank you. It's good to have you. Feels weird. Feels weird. Yeah, like a good way, but like a good weird. Well, that's that's good. It's good. It's like a new new pair of underpants, right? I guess since yeah, let's go straight to underpants. Yeah, let's see. go straight to underpants. That's nice. <laughs> it's it's early in the morning, so that's that's my immediate thought. So you're still in your? Are you wearing pants right now, Az? Or are you just wearing underpants? You can only see me from the top. Exactly. Down, so. I didn't actually notice when I came into the studio. <laughs> this could never pants. be a video podcast. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> well, just, we're just doing it around the room. <laughs> just a bunch of dudes talking about underwear. Um. So on that note. I'm gonna I'm gonna completely switch gears. Uh, so about the Sherman Alexi blog post response having to do with Michael Derrick Hudson, Jackie wrote in and says to us, from my point of view, Alexi described going on a wild chase for a pure selection of beauty and art with an elaborate system of rules he outlined in his blog post. He was trying to search for great art and eliminate influences of his own personal context and his own way of seeing the world to a certain degree. Maybe this is where he went wrong, because in our cultural moment, in culture high and low, we all realize that context is important and inescapable. Finding that one of the poems he selected was submitted cynically by someone with the agenda to point out the ways in which our lens is collectively shifting is something that's significant and could have been incorporated into his decision to keep the poem. But instead, he somehow convinced himself that context didn't alter the purity of the poem, Most importantly, the individual lens of the editor, author, scientist, historian, reporter is both what makes what one has to offer meaningful and is also the bias of status that one should try to acknowledge up front. Love you all, Jackie. You know, I appreciate this letter. Uh, I didn't think as deeply about it as our listener there did. I do subscribe to the idea, though, that there is no pure anything. And knowing who wrote it or having assumptions about who wrote it affects your valuing of a thing, even subconsciously. And so that there is a pure artistic value to something is not such a real thing. And whether it's other high art forms like classical music, opera, painting, that have this air of uh, intrinsic and pure value based solely on the merits, they they feel like some of the last uh, bastions where we haven't all fully accepted that, yeah, bias exists in all these things. And so it might be poetry that's one of the last places where you could still claim ah but the puritry the the puritry boom puritry the puritry that's i'm just going to stop talking on puritry and hear what someone else has to say um yeah i don't have much to add yeah 
to what she said. That wasn't really a question. It was more she was just sharing thoughts. She was sharing thoughts, yeah. which is uh, good. I think it adds a lot of context. So yeah, it's. I mean, and actually, here's the other thing. It did make me think of just a, a totally different play, but Mindy Kaling's brother, and mm-hmm. uh, we talked about this many, many weeks ago. His fake attempts to get into medical school by misrepresenting his race and claiming that he got in when he was black, when he presented as black, but not when he presented as Indian American, which I feel like this is a more successful version of that attempt. And the person who pulled off the hoax doesn't feel like as much of an asshole as Mindy Kaling's brother came across in explaining why he did it. Well, I think it's like we we touched on last week and it's worth reiterating. Affirmative action or a bias in favor of people of color is no more fair than the biases in favor of white people that currently exist. They're two different systems that exist to be gamed. You can game the white system. You can anglicize your name and, and go game that white system. Or you can... You can, if you, you can roll the dice that there's an editor who was looking for diversity. You can... You can uh, put on a yellow face name over there and try and game that system. It's just a matter of, you know, as long as you, I mean, he's perfectly transparent about it. I think what's very interesting is also when this becomes not the world of college admissions or government jobs, but mm-hmm. art. Right. And you are allowed a much more wider latitude of subjective judgment. I mean, I've heard publishers say, and it's, you know, it's benefited me because I'm, because I'm quite dark uh, like the 87% cocoa chocolate dark <laughs> is that your official yeah. government yeah. rating on darkness yeah, I just do you go and get the bars the whole foods yeah. line yeah. Just, I keep walking until I reach there's my probably area. an app that you can just yeah. tell how cocoa dark you are exactly yeah. and I've heard book publishers say all the time like they're kind of looking for new voices yeah. and kind of what that means is diversity and it's not to combat historic discrimination it's because freshness is it's hot. You know, it's hot. Yeah, it sells. Uh, I keep coming back to the symphony orchestra, which attempted to weed out sort of implicit bias in their auditions process by having a blind audition. Mm-hmm. Put up a curtain in front of the violinist in this case, and suddenly more women are being accepted because you can't see them as the fragile, less talented, less strong uh, excuse that you made for choosing men uh, relatively subconsciously for so many generations. So in the poetry case... Uh, no names. I, I mean, this seems like one of the simpler cases where you could do blind submission. There are many jobs which require you to understand, to see a person or to have their name attached. But poetry is just a file, right? You just send a file and you could just hide the name of the person. And then you'd have a truly fair assessment on the pure merits of the structure of the poem if that's what you claim you're going for. Yeah, but then, I mean, the context of the poem, as was the case with this, the poem has a lot of Western cultural references in it. And part of what he was, you know, struck by is like, oh, here's an Asian person writing about Western cultural references. That's interesting. Yeah, so the no, because the Internet doesn't make that possible at all. Like, that is huge. How do Asian <laughs> people ever know anything about I know, Western right? culture? That's like It's like we, it's, it's almost like we have the same Internet. Yeah, right. So like, I thought there was an Asian net and then like a Western net. But apparently they, well, I mean, they built a gateway between them. You're talking about the difference between performance and creation. With mm-hmm. the with the symphony orchestra, you give everyone the same uh, Bach concerto, and everyone plays the same piece, and you judge it purely on the merits of the performance. With poetry, of a creativity and a voice, and you know, part of who you are coming through the voice of the poem, can you do that blind in the same way? Well, I don't know. And I would argue that even in the symphony case. There's performance there, and there is creation in that performance. How you play Bach 
you know, same notes, different attitude, different vibe, your movement, your facial expression, like the energy that you give off. You're missing that when you put a curtain in front of someone because you're saying, I'm just going for the audio representation. Right. Symphony is not a purely audio experience. It's right. It's a communal experience. It's very visual. It's in the same room. It gets hot in there. People sweat. They right. have selfies going on. And you are missing that when you sh- kind of strip out those other layers. So poetry would lose, I think, as much or as little as a blind audition for a symphony when uh, you, you take that into account. Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Now, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work, but even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch or window is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's the Rachel Maddow Show, y'all. Weeknights, 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. All right. So uh, next, we actually have a voicemail from an author in the UK. Hey, Show About Race podcast. Uh, my name is Nick S. Shukler. I'm an author. And I wanted to talk about the Michael Derrick Hudson thing because I've spent a lot of time in the last six months working on, like, advocating for more increased diversity in publishing in the UK. And one of the reasons for that is this sort of question of authenticity comes up quite a lot. My first novel, when I sent it to a bunch of agents, before it was published, before it was nominated for prizes, etc. And one of the uh, pieces of feedback I had was that the agent didn't feel that the characters were authentically Asian enough, which at the time really, really upset me because on the one hand, she was in a position of power and I kind of had to trust her opinion because she was the gatekeeper. But at the same time, I'm Asian or I'm South Asian, and I wrote those characters, therefore they must be authentic, right? So uh, that really kind of spun me out a bit and made made me question what authenticity means. And when you think about the best American poetry, like when you're uh, a writer of colour, especially in the UK, you're told that nothing, you're you're not given opportunities because you're not white. Like no one is sort of ostensibly racist and sort of stopping you from getting your book published just because you're not white but um this idea of best uh, they they publish the best books and the books that have the most literary merit and when you think about how subjective the words best and literary merit are and you look at the makeup of the publishing industry in the UK and you think well these are the guys who are judging what's best which is why we have ended up in the situation we've ended up in the UK which is um you have, you know, being a South Asian author, it's confusing for the publishing industry if my books don't have arranged marriages or um, flirtations with terrorism or oppressive mothers or mangrove swamps or frangip- the, the scent of frangipan in the air. That just makes me wonder what authenticity is even these days and how people can even have the gall to try and take advantage of that. I love the show. I'm based in the UK. Often you guys talk about stuff that isn't relatable to my experience in the UK, but it's always bloody interesting, mate. All right, thank you. Bye. Yo, just going to pass the mic to resident South Asian American and writer Anand Giridas. You were cheering when you heard that voicemail. Well, I mean, I was sympathetic to him until he 
explained maybe why he was struggling, which is his, his total refusal to engage in themes of arranged marriage, terrorism, and mangroves. <laughs> and my only advice to him would be, you don't have to do those as three separate things because that would take up a lot of pages, but you could just imagine an arranged wedding of terrorists taking place in a mangrove. There you go. And it, it's something new, but it's also something old, mm-hmm. and it's, it's tradition meets modernity. Put it in Leicester. You don't have, you know, you can always play yeah. around with the narrative. And everyone could identify with that. Right. And be like, oh, look at how celebratory we are of these new voices. We're amazing. We're British. We're worldly. Exactly, because yeah. it's in Leicester. Yeah. And that's like, whoa, something new. Super. Yeah. Super new. <laughs> no, Natasha, we feel your pain, and... Uh, it's fascinating when, I mean, I've had this experience as a journalist of editors very far away from the place you are reporting on, or somewhere far away in the world, and editors whose job it is to, to edit you, um, but who obviously know less than you about the place, particularly in the case of when I was reporting in India, you know, because I was there and also because I had some cultural knowledge from a family background. At one level, it's their job. At another level, I've always said that is the place where so much media bias and frames get set in. It's not malice. It's not. It's just the inevitable ignorance of an editor who, has, who is editing people in 12 countries yeah. who just can't know what's the right story in each place. And it's mm-hmm. ignorance plus power. Yeah. And that equals kind of a repetition and a magnification of that ignorance. It's ignorance-infused work because you've taken what you've actually seen from a place you've actually been and then it gets crushed through this filter. There are thousands, probably millions of stories of black actors and people on stages being told, you're not being black enough. I need you to ghetto it up. I need you to ham it up. I need you to thug it up or, or, you know, the roles that are available for you. And certainly I had an experience even publishing How to Be Black, which involved outside editorial voices telling me what this book really should mean and how it should be presented. And I, I felt uh, Natesh's pain in that too because I wanted to have I didn't want to totally dismiss the experience and authority of someone in publishing who has done this a lot more than me like I've lived this life infinitely more than anyone else but I've this is like my third-ish book and as someone who has put their fingers on hundreds of books and seen this industry I have some level of respect for that experience yeah. and want to take that in so you end up in this place where you're like not fully doubting my own authenticity, but just that I'm spending time thinking about it is a, there's some erasure and there's some uh, frustration and loss and eventually anger that comes out of that. Cause when you're forced to doubt yourself because of someone else's doubt, that's truly damaging. Yeah. yeah. And I want to, I want to quote my grandmother who, you know, I, I was once asking her, how does it work to, you know, the silencing of girls mm. in India, in her generation of Indian women, how's that work? And she said something I never forget, which is, you know, first you have thoughts and you say the thoughts and people tell you to kind of not have the thought or shut up. Um, Then the thoughts keep coming, but you learn to stop vocalizing the thoughts. Mm. And then she said, at some point, then the thoughts just stop coming. Yeah. And so so I think part of what's even more scary is these moments of the editor or the publisher pushing back or crushing an idea are actually a very minority uh, of the situations. What then happens is that the writers start trying to please yeah. and write to those standards. To those expectations. And perhaps yeah. even exceed. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and I think editors actually sometimes want to be pushed back on more than they are. 
and and I felt it as a foreign correspondent. You you start thinking about stories in their terms instead of telling them how they should be thinking mm-hmm. of stories. And that's how you get an explosion of horrible hip hop. Because you wow, got what a segue from my grandmother. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Your grandmother is the cause of horrible hip hop. I think is what we just right. discovered on the show because you start performing for the expectation of those in power rather than starting with the goal of telling your quote-unquote authentic right. story. It goes, it, and, it becomes outside in instead of yeah, inside out. Yeah, and you know what will sell, and you're ultimately, you know, it's a business too, and you're trying to get paid, and you have your own needs and, and things that are required for survival, and so you do what is demanded by the market, but that market has been perverted by a smaller group of people who don't really know what they're talking about often. I actually have an interesting experience with this because I've ghostwritten books for black authors, Mm -hmm. for white publishers, where I'm the intermediary in the middle. And I feel like, you know, a great responsibility to the client, to the author, to bring their story as authentically as possible. And and then you get the pushback from the publisher saying, well, we want this, it should be this, it should be that. And I sort of have to be the author's advocate. These publishers, in their sort of ham-fisted, misguided way, they're overemphasizing the universal because they're coming from a point of view of like, well, how can everyone relate to this? Because what that simply comes to, how are we going to white people to buy this book? Mm-hmm. How can I sell this as a theme that white people will buy? Because white people have a whole lot more money and disposable income to buy books, and they're a much huger share of the consumer market. So that's they're doing it poorly, right? And what I try and do is, like, I just finished writing Luther Campbell's biography, uh, rapper from Liberty City and, you know, Two Life Crew and that whole thing. I wanted to be very faithful to his specific experience, but also in the back of my mind was... Is my mom going to like this book? Mm -hmm. Can I make a 70-year-old white woman from the suburbs enjoy this story? And she loved it. My mom loved the Luther Campbell biography because she learned something about the specificity of his experience, but she could also latch on to sort of the universal aspects of struggling to overcome injustice and everything else that went along with his life. So that's the the balance that you want to strike. It helps sell the book. And if that's your goal, then, yeah, taking that into account makes uh, some sense. And what there is... The other interesting experience I had was ghostwriting the uh, biography for Michael Jackson's Bodyguards. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought one of the great things about that story was that here's two everyday working black dudes who are taking care of the King of Pop in his final years, and ha- what what better way to humanize Michael Jackson and to remind people he's a working-class kid from Gary, Indiana, working-class black kid from Indiana, than to have these two everyday black dudes talking about him in everyday black vernacular. Very humanizing, right? So the first draft of the you know first few chapters I sent them, I left, I mean, the whole thing was just Ebonics. Every shit, every motherfucker, I was like, you know, these guys talking the way they talk. Yeah. They were horrified. They wanted me to code switch the whole thing. They wanted Who, me to make the, the, the bodyguards. The bodyguards were horrified. They wanted me to make them sound like Prince William because they were like, we want to sound professional. Hmm. I was like, guys, you got to be who you they are. They wanted to get that like Goldman Sachs security job from the book <laughs> coming out. <laughs> and so that, that was an interesting experience yeah. of... They didn't want to be too authentic. Yeah. Well, there's also, there's there's a medium question there, too, because the way you speak and the way words exactly. appear on a page, print is so much more formal. No, every b- time. black vernacular read on the page by white America reads yeah. as uneducated. Yeah. And that's what they're afraid of. And understandably so. So I, you know, we compromised where we, we sort of standardized the grammar, but we kept yeah. vocabulary. And I mean, you is, the same is true of Sarah Palin on a page right like you write down what she says you write down how Rand right. Paul talks which we'll talk about in the next 
and they're like, how, you don't know what a sentence is. Right. There's just m dashes and semicolons and all punctuation. I haven't seen it's a word since salad. like I accidentally pressed the function. Have you guys seen key some some Donald Trump speeches actually like written out? Yeah, it is postmodern. Yeah. No, it, it's, it is it's art. Postmodern. It is you need a, a PhD to read that yep. stuff. Yeah. Like, there is probably secret messages in them. There is. Like if you take the first secret letter, even of to every him, third word. Yeah, he, he's channeling something he doesn't understand. Exactly. Right. Uh, let's go. To, is there something else, AC? Next, we have a very short email from Suzanne on anglicizing names, which I think actually prompted a lot of response. And Suzanne writes us, "Why should we expect people to anglicize their names? I understand it's easier right now." But why aren't we calling out our own bias against non-Anglo-Saxon names? To me, that's the same thing as saying every business person should strive to match the traditional masculine expectations because it's what people are used to instead of calling the traditional expectations biased and useless. You, Tanner, in the last episode, you brought up uh, Raquel Cepeda, Baratunde Thurston, in the same breath as uh, John Belushi and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger, yeah. And I just want to I appreciate being listed in such great company. <laughs> I've never heard my name said next to Belushi, Schwarzenegger, and Cepeda before. Right. And it felt good. It works. And I was Particularly like, Cepeda. Yeah, because that's, it's just like it has a ring. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you have a history of, of people trying to anglicize your name, Anand? Uh, so I was at a book event. It's worth mentioning, given the story, that it was a book about a uh, white man who... Uh, shot a bunch of South Asians out of racism. So that's the context right. for this event. It was at the New America Foundation uh, offices in New York. And I happened to mention it in a radio interview that afternoon or earlier that day. And so, you know, I, I assume no one comes to these things from the radio, but, but, but a guy like one of these guys listening to the radio, like drives down and pulls over and he's there in a few hours, you know. Go radio. And he comes in. And he's like, this your book? And I was like, yep. He's like, I just want to say, I think you are so courageous. I was like, wow, thank yeah, you. Cool. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Wow, thank you. Thank you. And he's like, it's just amazing that you've chosen to keep your name. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry? Yeah. And he's like, no, it's just amazing that you have had the courage to keep your name. Yeah. I was like, keep it relative to what? Like, I'm not a, I'm not like a new bride, or like, I'm not sure what. <laughs> uh, like, keep it. What, what, are you, what are you talking about? And he was like, no. I mean, just you know, you could have so easily. It probably would have made sense. I mean, probably a good idea to change it to something you know easier. I was like, I'm, what, what are you talking about, sir? And he's like, you know, like Smith. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you're gonna love the topic of this book. <laughs> So if even the kind of people attracted to such a book event yeah. uh, feel this way, it, 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 it tells you what a long way we have to go. Yeah, well, what you guys brought up in your discussion uh, the last episode, Tanner, was I think you had said something like to keep the name, it works really well for people of such force. Or so f- well, have it's a, force a difficult, personality. It, it's the tougher road to hoe. And, and if you want to hoe it, then, you know... Yeah. More power to you, and you'll you'll feel better about your success when you get it. If you're a C average kid from from a state university, and you're just submitting a totally average resume that's yeah. in a pile of resumes with everyone else, Jane Smith's going to get picked before you. And you know, so like nobody has to anglicize their names. I had I got in a Twitter conversation with this guy asking me about you know because my Colby is, is Kolbinowitz or something. Kolbyshevsky. Uh, Kolbysinski. Sinski. He's actually Kolbysinski. spelled like Kielbasa. 
Oh, yummy. Kielbosinski. You have a delicious S- name. And he asked me, and he's like, why don't you, you know, un-anglicize your name and, and, and you know, like, reass- free it, liberate re- yourself. reassert your ethnic pride. I was like, yeah. well, at this point, I'm about as Polish as LeBron James. Like, and which name am I going to pick? Am I going to pick my Polish anglicized name? Am I going to pick my German anglicized yeah. name? Am I going to pick my Italian anglicized name? Which one am I going to embrace? I'm I'm not mixed race, but I'm just like a mixed bag of, of whatever. Yeah. And that's what the melting pot does eventually. Is your next just... book, Mixed Bag of Whatever. By I mean, we Clark. could let the crowd decide. I mean, let the audience <laughs> yeah, give them a bunch of options. And, and then, or and create a new name that is this hybrid. They always have those articles. Huffington Post does them like every six weeks. You'll never believe what happened when this resume went out with right. Jamil instead of John. It's like, well, I can believe it. Yeah. I can believe it. Whatever. But like, you know, what those studies tell you is not outrage white people are racist. What those studies tell you is that Assimilation is a useful tool for socioeconomic advancement. Oh, and that's the headline. And I'm just going to pause you right there. Oh, no, no, no. Because that's a great teaser for our upcoming episode. If you do not want to anglicize your name, that is entirely your prerogative as a free American. If you do anglicize your name, greases the skids a little bit. I mean, I think it also comes down to the question of, like, do you want to invent things like clocks? And if you want to invent clocks, (laughs) then it's on you to have a name that doesn't make it threatening to invent clocks. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? Whereas like if you don't want to invent name. clocks, yeah. like, go ahead and enjoy your existing Like, name. if you want to write books, it's fine to be Anand Girdardas. Exactly. But if you want to help people know what time it is, exactly. you should be maybe uh, exactly. uh, Albert Smith. Exactly. Now, has, right. has Baratunde ever been a problem for you? Only a solution, Tanner. Only a solution. For everybody else. Uh, yeah, it's been... I've had things imposed on me, and I bucked against it from a very early age. I had... As soon as I could remember sharing my name with people, those people wanting to change it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically out of laziness. Right. And what, what do you mean the, change it's, it? It's the soft bigotry of low expectations that people put wow. on themselves that they Great cannot reference. say Baratunde. Mm-hmm. And so they would hear it. And I think what happens in their heads is that's different. Right. Different is hard. Hard is scary. Scary makes me sad inside i don't want to feel sad today how about barry and i say i believe in you more than you believe in you i believe you can do this right can you say the word encyclopedia they're like oh yeah encyclopedia britannica blah 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 blah. i'm like then you can definitely say the much simpler term baratunde my uh, my job here is to restore americans faith in themselves Mm -hmm. and their ability to say baratunde Right. Uh, I've had people, you know, try to call me Bart, try to call me Barrington, try to call me Bartholomew, which is also, I feel like, a much uh, harder than harder name. Like there's an EW, people don't know what to do with that. TH is a hard thing for people to say if they're not growing up trained to get that tongue uh, working right. My name is Baratunde. There's no complex combinations going on in no, that. Baratunde so, is actually, as non-anglicized names go, it's a it's a fairly straightforward one. You know, and it it is to melodic you, as now, we as yeah. we discussed. Like Indiana Jones, Baratunde Thurston has a as a it rolls rhythmically off the tongue. Yeah. But my my experience from this, I mean, is you know Tanner is my middle name. My full name is Frank Tanner Colby, which mm. Frank is my father's name. And my whole life, you know, it's not a racial thing, but people say, oh well, why don't you just go by your first name? That's difficult. That's an extra step for everyone else. And I'm like, my reaction is the same as yours, but Tanner's my name. Like, Frank's not my name. Yeah. I've never gone by that. It's Tanner. But I would not name my child by their middle name. 
My brother, when he was naming his kids, his kid was born in France, he named him August so that when they lived in France, he could be Auguste, mm -hmm. and when they lived in Kentucky, he could be Gus. I have a friend who's Iranian, and her husband is white, and she named her son Cyrus because Cyrus is actually an Iranian name that has been fully westernized and also accepted here yeah. so that he can go both ways. So, again, it, yeah, you can talk about it in terms of white supremacy and cultural hegemony and all that, but it's also the practicality of how you want your child to go through the world. Find a name that reflects your values, but also allows them to move easily through the world. Well, and then the other filter you have to consider is how can that name be manipulated to destroy that child's ego and right. mock them with little sing-along hate songs. Right. Well, so, yeah, because I, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> what, what, what did they call you? On and what? What did they rhyme it with? What did they do? If the About Race podcast would shoulder the therapy bills that would be involved <laughs> with me sharing all that right now, I will happily share it. All but, right. We'll, we'll save yeah. it for the seaside, which yeah, is I, yet to, to be determined. I got Colby cheese all the time. And <laughs> what, what, what Gary Hardass. That, that's one I'm willing to share. <laughs> last, oh, Geardardas to yeah. Gary Hardass. Gary Hardass. Geary Hard. Oh, it's... On a geary hard ass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. kids are so Well, what stupid. does make me feel better is I was once in Nigeria uh, visiting a guy named Babatunde, mm -hmm. and I told him very excitedly about my relatively new friend at the time, Baratunde, and instead of being happy or excited... Oh, or, yes, here it comes. He was like, no, 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 he spells his name wrong. <laughs> yep. That's yep. it. Yeah, no, that's that's the Nigerian reaction. That's, yeah. yeah. They're so good just, at it. Who, who can you please... Yeah. Myself, right. it turns out. <laughs> there you uh, go. AC, what do we got next? Speaking of picking a name that works for you and mm. trying to go with meaning, uh, Laura has some thoughts and sent us this voicemail. Hi, my name is Laura. I called to weigh in on AC's question on whether or not he anglicized his name, and I would vote yes. I think it conveys a very broish vibe associated with white dude culture. Which brings me to another thing I'd love to hear y'all talk about more. Assimilation via language or language loss. I was born in Washington Heights to Dominican immigrants, and Spanish was the first language I learned how to speak and read. However, when I was nine, my parents moved us to Florida, away from all of our extended family. Because of that move, there was no longer a need to communicate on a daily basis with relatives who didn't speak English. I began speaking to my parents only in English, while they spoke to me in Spanish, and I found that I was slowly losing my fluency. Today, thanks to a solid foundation in the language and years of high school Spanish along with a few college courses, I can speak Spanish at an intermediate level. But for years, I found myself embarrassed to even practice the words in a language that I felt I should know by heart. And even today, I stumble over the words. Having moved back to the city, I find myself in an uncomfortable place where corporate America expects fluency from me as a Latina job applicant, and I find little discussion about second-generation Latino Americans that includes issues beyond the traits we share with our parents. I'm very proud to be Latina, but I am not my parents. My values don't necessarily align with traditional Dominicans, and I can't even tell you how to cook some mangu. These facts always make me wonder how I would have turned out if I had finished growing up in the Heights instead of a suburb in Orlando, Florida. I worry about that cultural loss and what assimilation will cost my future children. And I wonder if Raquel specifically could speak on how her children cope with biculturalism. Thanks for everything y'all do and keep up the great work. That was such a good voicemail. It's amazing that you guys are creating the kind of conversation that leads to such voicemails. Yeah, there you go. I'm like, I feel, thank you. Uh, Laura, gracias. 
and uh, AC. Guys, am I bro-ish? <laughs> the way she dissed you <laughs> was <laughs> so smooth. It was classy. It was, it was, but, classy. But it was a class. She was like, that's an Orlando put style put down. Bro- but, but it was almost since NPR I, voice. Am, am I wrong though? But the, the, the most famous AC I know is AC Cowling. Right? I don't know any ACs. So yeah, but OJ's driver in the why you in the chase. Why do you remember that? That's I just weird. Remember thing. that AC Cowling. That's not normal. Okay. No one yeah. knows that. Can, can, right. I'm going to share a little bit. Yes. I actually chose AC because of AC Green because I was a Lakers fan as a kid. Okay. So to me, it's never been a whitening thing. If anything, it's been like the producer doth protest too much. I think uh, maybe maybe a little bit. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 it was a it was a baller. It was a baller. I named myself after a ball player. Um, Raquel is not here, obviously, Laura, but. She will weigh in, I'm sure, when she's back. And uh, she's think, weighing in right now at home. She's yeah, just like already, yeah. And you should you should find her on Twitter. She's at Raquel Cepeda. I'm sure she'd be happy to hear from you because she's always excited about people who are from way uh, up Upper Manhattan, as it's uh, being called now, to uh, to jump in on that. But anybody want to? Yeah. I mean, I think just one thing I, that I really connected with in that is the idea that I think we're starting to have a better picture of. Um, that being in between things um, is both in our time is both a source of power that is new in human history um, to be in between cultures and to be in between worlds. I mean, the idea of someone like Barack Obama, who's not you know just a black man. That's I mean, he, he's actually a person who's between and straddles so many worlds and languages and cultures. Um, there's a new power in that, but there's also a new sense of loss that I think we haven't fully understood yet. And we often tell the immigrant story in America, the story of people come here and they work hard and they reinvent themselves. Mm -hmm. And we often don't talk about the psychological loss um, that that is in some ways in, you know, like cutting off a limb to Mm -hmm. to save your body. Um, and, And I hope we kind of slowly have a deeper understanding of what that process is for a lot of people. I just think I would end by saying, look, there's no I in assimilation. There are several. Oh shit! <laughs> there, there's multiple eyes, but maybe that's the point. Yeah, well, there's the, multiple. We're all going eyes, through it together, right? There's multiple parts wow. of ourselves in this word, and uh, some are gains and some are losses. And thank you all so very much for sending in your vulnerabilities, your feelings, your thoughts, and uh, your disses as classily delivered as possible. Uh, this conversation becomes that when you are a part of it. So thanks again for listening to our national conversation about conversations about race, this B-side with you.